0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> we prepared for a, a whole night for this event, actually, because we know that the president has a very short time and we needed to convince him, right? So we discussed a lot with his staff about who should talk about what, because not everybody was allowed to talk, right? Who is going to be the representative? I departed at 4 a.m. in the morning for this event. I prepared everything.
2: This is Masia, but she goes by the name Missy. She lives in Jakarta, Indonesia, a sociologist by training. What she's recounting is a day 3 years ago, which was the culmination of her decades worth of work in the field of women's rights and empowerment. She had finally secured an audience with Joko Widodo the president of her country.
1: Um, I got my turn to speak, so because I was the representative. I conveyed the importance of protecting women by uh, increasing the marriage age from 16 to 19 years old.
2: Globally Indonesia has the eighth highest number of child marriages, a practice that increases the chances of domestic violence, dropping out of school and poverty. Missy and her colleagues wanted to convince Widodo to increase the legal marriage age from 16 to 19, which could dramatically decrease the rate of child marriage. But rather than try to appeal to Widodo's heart, Missy and her colleagues made an economic argument for changing the policy. And to do that, they came equipped with reams of data to back it all up. On today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production from Foreign Policy, we hear about how Missy collected data and used it to build a powerful case to uproot a deeply entrenched cultural norm. And later on, we learn about the most effective ways to decrease child marriage around the world. I'm Nainan. Well, this is not the first time you've heard about the need for better gender data on the show.
0: This data actually caused a very public conversation and a reckoning about the nature of violence against women.
1: Data is the evidence, really, to constantly advocate the rights of these workers, to showcase what's really happening. This data directly informed new government strategies and policy responses.
2: As you can see, successful activism means making strong arguments to leaders and policymakers. That change is in their own interest. And to do that, you need to present facts, And when it comes to gender issues, they're often hard to come by. So it felt fitting to us to end this season with a story about the transformational impact sound gender data can have. Missy founded the nonprofit Kapal Perampuan, which is called the Institute for Women's Alternative Education. Missy started Kapal in 2000 as a country was transitioning to democracy. One of the biggest obstacles to their work became obvious right away.
1: So the first challenge is actually conservatism in Indonesia. One of our challenges then became the conservative groups that try to voice their opinion to move into a more conservative society which is more oriented uh, oriented with uh, traditional values linked with even religious values as well.
2: And one of these traditional values included child marriage which Missy says has long been intertwined with Indonesian culture. She laid it out to me, explaining four main factors.
1: Yeah, So there are four factors. The first one is uh, gender bias is still very strong in Indonesia. Women are expected to start their families. So uh, they are all pushed to get married as soon as possible. And there's even this term called Old mate or prawantua, which is a very scary term for parents to hear about their daughters. And there's also like tradition which legitimates child marriage. So kids can even get kidnapped to be pushed. To, to, to be married off and even the religion supports this that girls have to marry quick and there are movements in indonesia for example like indonesia without dating movement which pushes girl to marry quicker old mate what is that it, it means that Um, women needs to get married in an expected range of age. So, for example, in a rural village, around 14 to 16 years old, uh, they are considered a proper age to, to marry. Above that age range, they will be considered that, oh, this person is not wanted by anybody. She is unwanted, and it brings shame to the family.
2: You've done a lot of work on what you call the feminization of poverty. What do you mean by that? And what have you learned about that process?
1: Yeah, feminization. As a practical example, if they can get married when they reach 16 years old, then they will drop out of school, which then in turn makes them unable to get a job, which then in turn will make them poor economically, or it, it, it can even impact their reproductive health which creates many, many problems for their health and economy.
2: One of the ways Missy and her team documented the feminization of poverty is through grassroots surveys. Part of their community organizing throughout many rural parts of Indonesia is training local women to collect data on various topics. This includes education levels, domestic violence, and marriage rates, as well as how issues like child marriage impact women's rights and girls' lives. Her data collectors knocked on a lot of doors, explaining their surveys to as many marginalized women as possible.
1: So we try to fill in the gap on the available data, because the available official data from the village, it doesn't represent the data of women, or even marginalized groups. So our effort here is try to convey all the voices in the village and turn them into data that can actually be acknowledged by the government.
2: But Missy says it's not just the national government that gets access to the data. She and her team are also active on the community level. They hold village forums where they share their findings with local leaders, including government officials. So then, the local community can use the data. So after many years of documenting the impact of child marriage on women and girls in Indonesia, Missy finally made it to the presidential palace.
1: Yeah, We prepared for a, a whole night for this event actually, because we know that the president has a very short time and we needed to convince him right? So we we discussed a lot with his staff about who should talk about what, because not everybody was allowed to talk, right? Who is going to be the representative. I departed at 4am in the morning for this event. I prepared everything. Uh, We dressed in a manner which shows that we are wearing the products that the women uh, produced by themselves and stuff like that. So there were many preparation needed, both technically
2: and also uh, contextually. So when you met face to face with him what did he say
1: yeah kami so yeah, we were actually picked up at the door by the president himself. He shook hand with all twenty of us, uh, one by one. So it felt very special for me. And when we get into inside the room, we sat down and he actually spoke about the efforts that uh, that the government is doing for the development of Indonesia. And after that, I got my turn to speak. So because I was the representative, I conveyed the importance of protecting women, by by uh, increasing the marriage age from 16 to 19 years old. So, I mentioned three reasons why we needed to stop child marriage. I tried to link it with the priorities of the president for his five years development plan. And I said that first, it will definitely hinder the president's effort for 12 years compulsory education in Indonesia if child marriage continues. And second, from health perspective, it will also hinder his effort in improving health conditions, especially in terms of mother mortality rate. And third, it will also hinder his efforts to eradicate poverty because child marriage will, as I said before, impoverish women and girls. The president actually said, I will try to address this problem despite my opponents because I don't fear my opponents. I don't have any interest in their in their view. So that statement actually made all of us cry especially when he actually said that I don't fear the opponent. I will pass this bill because it's really important. So that's a very memorable moment for me.
2: Missy and her colleagues efforts to show how child marriage worsened women's and girls' education, health and poverty levels worked. A bill was introduced to ban child marriage in Indonesia. And in 2019, the ban on child marriage passed. This was a huge victory and a satisfying one. But laws are just really the first step. Then there's implementation. And while this law is on the books, many youth are still getting married. And enforcement is patchy, particularly in rural areas. Also, COVID is causing a spike in child marriage, including Indonesia. After the break, we talk to Mabel Von Aranya, founder of Girls Not Brides and Vow for Girls. She shares lessons from her decades in the field about how to end child marriage around the world.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real P.O.S.? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
2: Welcome back to the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production from Foreign Policy. Before the break, we heard about the successful campaign to ban child marriage in Indonesia. But making child marriage illegal is just one part of eradicating this devastating practice. There need to be many solutions to prevent and end underage marriage, particularly in the wake of COVID. As schools closed and families had a harder time making ends meet, they had more incentive to marry their daughters off. On March 7th, 2021, UNICEF released a report called 10 million additional girls at risk of child marriage due to COVID-19. To give you an idea of how big the problem of child marriage is around 20 percent of all women still get married under the age of 18. but what can really be done what are the best ways to decrease child marriage not only in specific places like indonesia but globally to hear more about this we talked to mabel von Aranya, founder of girls not brides and now vow for girls Mabel's been an activist since the 1990s, starting her professional career as founder and executive director of the European Action Council for Peace in the Balkans. And she's done too many impressive things to really list here. One thing, though, that's unique about Mabel is she's actually the first member of royalty we've interviewed on the show. She married into the Dutch royal family in 2004 and is a princess. But you really would know this talking to her. Mabel has had a lifelong focus on human rights. I've spoken to her many times. And in the last 15 years, she's really been focused on ending child marriage. Mabel, such a pleasure to have you here today. There are so many issues that you could choose to focus on. Why do you choose to focus on child marriage?
3: I remember about 12 years ago, kind of learning about child marriage. And then I mean, the the words say it all, child and marriage. Girls under the age of 18, mostly girls, sometimes boys getting married. But I had no clue how big the problem is. 12 million girls every year. That's a girl every three seconds. One girl, another one, and it goes on and on and on. But it's not just an enormous problem, but it's also having huge consequences for the lives of these girls. Their bodies are not actually not ready for pregnancy yet. um, So they're much more likely to have complications when they get pregnant. They're normally pulled out of school. They're more likely to become the victims of violence. And so it's an enormous problem and it is having enormous consequences. When I learned about child marriage, I realized almost nobody in the world was paying attention or working on it. These 12 million girls were invisible. And so when I learned about it, I figured I can't sit still. I have to do something.
2: How do you explain why parents allow their children, their girls, to get married
3: at such a young age like this? Every parent wants the best for their children. And so I don't think parents do this because they want to hurt their daughters. And so it's often either because the circumstances are such that actually marrying off your daughters at a young age seems to be the the best option uh, because there are no better alternatives. Or because sometimes it's driven by tradition. People do it because it's been done generation after generation and they don't know any better. Sometimes it's done because there aren't alternatives, like there aren't schools for for girls. Uh, Sometimes it is because parents are worried about the sexual safety of the girls. Imagine that she would get sexually active and pregnant before she's married. That might either dishonor her or it might dishonor the family. Sometimes it has to do with economic reasons. The fact that if you marry your daughter off, you have one less mouth to feed. Or in a place like India, where there's a dowry payment involved, the younger the girl is, the less high the dowry is. And so for poor parents, there is pressure to marry your daughter at a young age. It is always related to gender inequality. That idea that a girl is worth less than a boy. And I've heard it so often, parents saying, girls are a burden. You need to get rid of them as quickly as you can. So Mabel, what do
2: you think are real solutions that can help to prevent or end child marriage?
3: Over the last couple of years, we have learned a lot about what works effectively to end child marriage. And the most important thing we know is that if you want to end child marriage, yes, having national policies can be useful, having UN resolutions can be useful, but that doesn't in the end affect what happens in the lives of girls. And so if you want to end child marriage, you really need to work in the lives of the girls and their families and their communities. You need people who understand the community and who understand mm-hmm. why child marriage happens. You need to empower them to work them with the people who can be the change makers. So in some communities, that means you do projects to empower the girls and help them realize that they actually have rights and that child marriage you know, is not a normal path. In some communities, it means making sure that there's secondary education available and that the parents can actually pay for, let's say, the school uniforms or the school books. In some communities, it means sensitizing the parents or the religious or the local traditional leaders and help them understand that what seems to be the right thing to do is actually something harmful, not just for the girl, but it keeps the whole community stuck in poverty. In some cases, it requires providing cash transfers that encourage families to keep their girls in school rather than than taking them out for marriage.
2: So you pay money to keep them in school?
3: Exactly. You you keep money to keep them in school or make it possible for the parents to to be able to feed their daughters. And Mm -hmm. so you really need localized solutions and you need to empower the people who understand why it's happening, who has the power to change it and how it should be changed Make them do it. This is an
2: incredible organization that you newly started called Vow for Girls. Tell me about it.
3: Well, you know, the aha moment for me came when I went to the wedding of friends and they said, look, either buy a present from our gift registry, you know, like towels or China or make a donation to a good cause. And I had this light bulb moment and I thought, what if we could mobilize that big wedding industry to make sure that when couples say I do, girls elsewhere in the world can say I don't. And so we created Vow for Girls and we're basically working together with epic brands and with and their and their products and then with couples and friends and family and people who are, who are celebrating wedding anniversaries and also with wedding professionals like the planners, etc., to all mobilize money to make sure that we get more girls to be able to choose love on their own terms as well. And the wedding industry, we found out, is a hundred billion dollars per year in the United States alone. Mm. So if we could get a tiny fraction of that money, that will make an enormous difference on the ground in Africa, in Latin America and in Asia. And that makes that dream of a world without child marriage actually within reach.
2: Mm. You know, we focused the first half of the show on the ban to end child marriage in Indonesia. What have you noticed about child marriage there that's different from other places?
3: It's interesting in Indonesia that although the the rate, the percentage rate of child marriage might not sound very high, 16%, 1-6% of all girls get married before the age of 18, because it's such an enormously big country, Actually, in absolute number, it's the seventh highest number of child brides in the world. And it's having a big impact also on the economy. The United Nations did a study in 2014 that Indonesia's GDP, the gross domestic product, would improve by 1.7% if you were to end child marriage. From what I understand, the reasons why child marriage happens in Indonesia are quite similar to other places. Gender inequality, lack of girls' education or an unwillingness to send your girls to school, economic reasons, poverty-related, honor, the fear about sexuality. When I visited Indonesia in 2018, one of the things that struck me, there was a lot around the issue of sexuality. A taboo to talk about sex, a fear that girls will get pregnant before they're married, and therefore enormous pressures to actually marry your daughters off before they might become sexually active or they could get pregnant and it's not necessarily the girls who want to become sexually active eh? it's often the boys and the men who misuse these girls and then the girls pay a very heavy price of not longer going to school and becoming child brides. so now that there's a ban in indonesia do you think folks can start to relax what needs to come next It's definitely helpful because I do think when politicians and powerful people send a signal that this is not longer acceptable, it might make a difference, but it might not be enough. We know there are many countries where you have laws that prohibit child marriage. Uh, Take, for example, India, which has the biggest number of child rights in the world. They've had a law prohibiting child marriage for more than 100 years. Mm -hmm. So political commitments, bans, national policies, they can be helpful, but in the end, they do not always trickle down into the communities where the parents decide whether to marry the daughters off at the early age, yes or no. So we need to combine them with work on the ground in those communities to actually make sure that the girls stay safe. Mabel, how has COVID
2: impacted child marriage around the world?
3: COVID has been disastrous for the numbers of child brides. Because of interrupted education, because of increasing poverty, et cetera, et cetera. So the United Nations estimate that between now and the end of this decennium, there will be at least 10 million more child brides. And if I listen to the stories from the ground, I'm afraid it's going to be many, many millions more.
2: And is it because of this economic downturn
3: that there's sort of a financial incentive,
2: as you've mentioned, in getting them married off?
3: I think the reason that we are expecting so many more marriages because of COVID is partially to do to, to indeed economic downturn and and poverty. The fact that education was severely interrupted in many countries also meant that girls stayed at at home, and thereby the parents felt like, well, we might as well marry them off. And so, I mean, COVID has been bad for everybody, but I fear that once again it is girls and women who are paying a very very high price. As caregivers, as people who often soonest gave up their jobs, but in the case of child marriage, also, you know, many more girls getting married.
2: Hmm. I know it's a bit of a grim picture talking about this, but I want to end on a positive note. What gives you the most hope that there can be significant progress and quickly?
3: I've seen so many communities where 10 years ago, child marriage was the most normal thing in the world. And they have decided to no longer marry their girls at a young age. And that feels like something that can easily, easily spread all over the world. And that makes me hopeful because I know that a world without child marriage will be a a world where not just girls and women, but also boys and men will be better educated, healthier, more prosperous and more equal. I think we should make sure that girls can be girls and not brides.
2: Mabel, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Rina. It was a real pleasure speaking with you again. That was Mabel Von Aranya, founder of Valve for Girls.
2: So, Mabel ended our conversation talking about how she's inspired seeing how social norms have changed in communities around the world. Places where child marriage felt natural a decade ago are now illegal. It's made me think about the fight for gay marriage here, how society changed, and then the laws changed with it. I've got to say I'm sad that this is our last episode of our second season, but what I can promise you is that we're going to explore how to change social norms a lot more in future episodes. And without giving too much away, we hope to be back in your feed in the fall. Until then, we hope you're well, and remember, ordinary yet remarkable people are capable of changing the world. Like Rachel Career in Kenya, Ultimately,
1: when I won this case, I've been able to actually settle down in my life and earn a
2: living. It changed my life. And Ada Sakwe in Nigeria. That moment when my store was demolished, that moment changed it all for me. I was like, my gosh, the government is the power here. The government needs to understand and be empathetic of what business owners are going through, specifically small business owners and Agnes Sithole in South Africa.
3: I know of so many friends of mine that were victims of this law. I persevered the pain. I persevered the case itself. You can say perseverance is the mother of success.
2: And that does it for today's show and our second season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. This is a production of Foreign Policy and supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Brina Ninen. Laura Rosbrow tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Anissa Pazeski, Megan Cattell, Zimone Perez, and Dan Efron. And special thanks this week to Allison Holder from Equal Measures, who recommended we talk to Missy. You should check out their latest report on country's progress toward gender equality, sustainable development goals. It's pretty sobering. Also, a big thanks to In-Depth Creative, a lovely podcast company based in Jakarta. They helped produce our interview with Missy. And their interpreter, Weena, did such a lovely job that we included her interpretation also as Missy's voiceover. Thank you all so much for joining us. We'll see you back this fall.